welcome to another episode of the 39A podcast. This is Devika Prasad from Project 39A. We are a criminal justice program based out of the National Law University in Delhi. For this episode, we are in conversation with Bablu Noitangbam and Henry Tiffane to commemorate the UN International Day in support of victims of torture. 26th June is the day in 1987 when the UN Convention Against Torture came into effect. Today is a sober reminder that 24 years after signing the UN Convention in 1997, the government of India has still not ratified it and brought in a strong domestic torture prevention law. With this in mind, it's heartening to introduce our two guests and have the opportunity to talk about their work in supporting torture survivors and their families. Bablu is the director of Human Rights Alert, an NGO based in Manipur. He has been documenting human rights violations in the Northeast, organizing victims, and opening up access to human rights protection mechanisms. Henry is one of the founders of People's Watch, based in Tamil Nadu. People's Watch documents human rights violations and provides legal representation and rehabilitation avenues to those affected. From 2006 to 2008, he was engaged in a national project with partners in nine states, monitoring and intervening in cases of police torture. Bablu and Henry, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for joining us today. So, Henry and Bablu, I'd like to start the conversation by asking you, uh, in your extensive work, especially in dealing with cases of torture, how would you describe the nature of torture and the circumstances in which it most often occurs in your state? Uh, thank you for inviting us for this very important conversation. Well, in my particular context in Manipur, you know, torture happened uh, for a long time uh, on petty criminals, poor people, but uh, it had taken a much more diabolic proportion uh, when it was used systematically as part of the counterinsurgency operations. Uh, so people who are Uh, suspected to be involved with uh, insurgency or what we call generally in underground activities, there was a kind of an acceptance that they should be tortured uh, and it is okay to torture them. In fact, it is considered as nationalistic or patriotic for the law enforcement officials and the military to torture them. I still remember a young man uh, who was suspected to be supporting the insurgent when I was quite new to this. Uh, documentation of torture. His name was Pranam Singh. Uh, we went and document his case and his intestine was uh, dangling outside because the military have put a stick into his anus and destroyed the entire uh, intestine and he has to undergo operation. He was completely pale um, and um, I mean struggling to survive. Uh, so this picture remained with me for a long time even as we continue the work for the next 20 years uh, and more. So in the counterinsurgency context, uh, torture has been systematically used to break the uh, whatever the resistance, the spirit, what is construed as anti-national activities. 
so it became a much more systematic uh, work that is perpetrated by the state uh, with a political objective. And Henry, if you'd like to uh, also answer that question. Thank you, Devika, for this, uh, this opportunity of a, uh, of a discussion with you and um, Bablu. My own personal understanding of torture uh, through a definition uh, came much, much later. My understanding of torture started with what we saw in the, in the 70s in, in, in my part of uh, the country, where the so-called anti-Naxalite movement was to be crushed. And to crush that, any amount of police violence, various forms of torture were generally permitted and uh, accepted by the public. And this is what uh, was the basis of very organized torture that took place. It was much later that a very careful understanding of the definition, particularly uh, the why of torture being not only for punishment, not only for obtaining confession, but also for intimidating and coercion for any reason based on discrimination of any kind started entering our system. And by that time, I think for me, it was already 1995, and I saw it happening. So-called caste riots of the early 90s in southern Tamil Nadu, where we found that on the basis of caste, there was a very clear discrimination. And all attacks of the dominant caste were tolerated by superior officers of the state, whereas there was a clear discrimination against the Dalit populations, the, the victims uh, who came from there, and there was uh, torture that was taking place on, on, on them by the police, which had its origin in discrimination and caste discrimination. And later, we saw this developing, and that was the whole spale uh, of incidents during uh, where the caste rights were taking place in Tamil Nadu. Then after we, we learned uh, about torture in a little more significant manner when we were in the 1990, early 90s, where we saw the special task force created by the government of Tamil Nadu and Pondicherry. And incidentally, headed by the same police officer who was in the anti-Naxalite wing uh, that I referred earlier. In their attempt to catch Veerappan, all forms of torture were used. So the special task force was another uh, event when everybody was, was able to, to see what was taking place. And thereafter, of course, all of you know that this is a regular, routine, everyday affair. I had occasion between 2006 and 8 to work in about nine states with a number of organizations and uh, work in 47 districts. We, we expanded the results of what we saw in the field. We, our results showed that 1.8 million people fell victim to all forms of torture in the country, in our police state. That's a very sobering reality, Henry, that you shared. On this question of whether it is routine, Bablu, I wanted to ask you if uh, you found, you know, the same, the same reality in Manipur. Of course, um, yeah, as I was also describing earlier, the uh, torture have been used primarily uh, to break the insurgency or the armed uh, rebellion. And the instrument that is used is the Armed Forces Special Powers Act, which provides impunity to the security forces. But uh, once that phenomena of impunity sets in uh, to the institutions, the police, uh, the administration, the, the medical professionals, uh, the police also 
systematically indulging in in torture so it it was it was a very routine exercise there are certain torture centers that were designated inside the military camps but also in what we call the joint interrogation centers where both the state as well as central security forces as well as the intelligence people would um, tortured suspected insurgents to extract uh, what is called operational intelligence interestingly you know earlier uh, even in the armed forces special powers act operation the military was expected to hand over the people who are arrested by them with least possible delay to the police stations but however there was a change when counterinsurgency intensified in 2001 uh, following an slp by the army to the supreme court they have uh, got an order specifying that the military is authorized to gather what they call operational intelligence unlike substantive intelligence which is basically the work of the investigator so uh, giving military the authority to extract operational intelligence from suspected insurgents uh, has given them a lot of leeway for suspected insurgents to be uh, you know detained uh, tortured and extract those intelligence the problem is once you allow these kind of exceptional laws to operate who is a suspected in, uh, insurgent is a, is a very what you call a subjective question so the the people who can be detained and subjected to this kind of torture uh, that definition keep on expanding it doesn't limit you know the nature of power being what it is it keep on expanding to other people so if the police wants to settle score with somebody uh, who who they are not uh, happy with or if they are paid uh, by a certain vested interest to torture someone then all kinds of these draconian laws are used against people and because of that permissiveness and because of that impunity they can exercise this quite liberally uh, without any fear of law uh, setting in i mean we have not just armed forces special powers act but if you look at the unlawful activities prevention act uh, manipur is such a small state with not even 1% of india's population we are not even half percent of india's population i think we are 0.4% of india's population but if you look at the number of people detained under unlawful activities prevention act we are at least 34% uh, that's the latest figure but at some point it was even more than 60% of the unlawful activities prevention act detainee and when once you are detained under this kind of special uh, laws uh, torture has become quite routine and therefore the the problem is when you create this kind of state of exception it gradually become the rule and once you give police and security forces this kind of impunity it doesn't confine to specifically insurgents or suspected insurgents but it slowly spreads to the rest of the population the caste dynamics that uh, henry have described uh, is probably um not so stark as we in 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 the in our context but uh, ethnicity is definitely an issue where you know if you belong to the dominant ethnic community then perhaps you you have friends and relatives and people that you know within the power structure but if you come from a small tribe with very little access to power uh, i think that your vulnerability also increases 
So just the way uh, Bablu has pointed us to the fact that social identity certainly plays a part in who are the victims of torture. I'd like to ask you, Henry, uh, in the context, in your context in Tamil Nadu, who are the victims of torture? I really would like to follow from where Bablu left uh, on the question of vulnerability. And when we look at the vulnerability question, we see that it is usually, in general, if you were to speak, the, the powerless sections of society. And when I say powerless sections of society, it is not only in terms of caste, uh, it is also in all other forms of, of uh, poor people, homeless people. If you are poor, you are more vulnerable to be subject to torture. There are definite uh, results that have come out of our engagements which show that uh, the scheduled castes, um, Dalits in general, uh, Adivasis in particular, and these days uh, also uh, Muslim uh, sections of population, in addition to generally poorer sections, are the most vulnerable to torture. And in particular, mention has to be made, uh, uh, Devika, to what are known as denotified tribes. These are remnants of the old British uh, Criminal Tribes Act of 1871, which was repealed later and then, of course, has been, has been repealed in 1949 and then brought again through the Habitual Offenders Act, where people uh, who belong to certain communities which are denotified uh, tribes are then specially picked up by the police for subjecting them to torture in, in, in relation to criminal cases which are undetected. So these are communities which are located in different parts of the state and the police know where they live. And all that they do is subject them to brutal torture, ask them to give out confessions on the basis of which hundreds of cases are, are registered against them. And it's a sad reality because convictions are very, very rare. And therefore, families cannot live together because they are born into a community which is a denotified tribe and therefore at the hand of the police for, for torture. So it is uh, not only Dalits, not only Adivasis, denotified tribes, Muslim populations, and generally the, the powerless in the state who are vulnerable to various forms of torture that we have spoken of. I'd like now to uh, understand a little bit better in terms of the strategies that you both adopted uh, in this very complex and difficult work on torture prevention and uh, you know, anti-torture. How have documentation on one hand and litigation or legal interventions integrated and complemented each other? Um, and especially to highlight where does documentation stand in this? I mean, is it a sort of precursor to effective litigation? Uh, Bablu, if uh, you can uh, share uh, your thoughts. Devika, I think uh, documentation is the key. It is the first step for the rest of the journey that we need to work along with the, the torture survivors. Getting the narrative from the survivor himself, documenting it, putting it down in um, black and white. Uh, documentation in the sense of, you know, photographing his or her injury or the marks that is left, the telltale uh, signs of, of torture that is physically visible. But also documentation in terms of you know, uh, uh, a medical examination and getting a, a doctor to uh, testify the reality of torture, 
very often uh, this is the problem. There is a hesitation from the medical community uh, also, particularly in a very charged environment like what we see in Manipur, uh, to say that these are the result of torture. Nobody wants to get entangled into medical legal cases. So these are some of the challenges we face. But again, without proper documentation, it is very, very difficult uh, to get into litigation. Honestly, there is also a, a very deep sense of reluctance from the uh, side of the lower judiciary or the police themselves to file an FIR. There is a need for a very clear law in the country. Uh, efforts were made, but it's, it's never happening to define torture specifically as a, as a crime. We are all now using grievous hurts and, and all this kind of very general legal um, provisions uh, to, to, to uh, take up the torture litigation. And honestly, we have, um, we have no case to cite as a successful fight against torture uh, in, in terms of getting a good judgment from the court. Uh, sometimes, um, you know, quasi-judicial bodies like the uh, Human Rights Commission, the State Human Rights Commission, are much more um, responsive to it. But in any case, it is important. I mean, documentation is not just a statement of the victims, but also our effort to use the system and the systems taking cognizant of it. That also needs to be documented. But honestly, it's a very frustrating experience so far, particularly in the in the context of Manipur, because there is a very, um, I mean, there's a strong kind of uh, belief uh, that if people are of doubtful character or or, or criminals, that there, there is uh, also a sense among the institutions, people who are manning the institutions, that uh, torture is okay. We we have more success if there is. Uh, debt resulting out of torture. Uh, if it is a custodial debt, uh, then there is a lot more. Uh, it is much more easier to document in the sense um, the mobilization of the society and the media and 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 also uh, as a result of that, the lower judiciary or the police is easier that way. Uh, whereas sometimes in the context of the conflict in Manipur, where there is so many uh, violence, uh, sometimes people walk out of the police station or the army camps alive consider themselves as lucky because at least they are they are alive the other thing challenge of documentation and litigation is that people uh, suffer tremendous amount of post-traumatic stress and for people who have gone through this traumatic experience of being uh, smashed i mean it's not just the physical destruction but your whole self-esteem is also very badly destroyed. So this whole process of how this survivor, the psychological state of this person has to gradually move from this uh, survivor to a litigant is a huge process. And very often we cannot come to that extent. A recovery and a sense that yes, I am a human being and therefore I have human rights. And as a human rights holder, we need to claim that right by using the system, uh, it's a huge process. And particularly because we don't have very good example to set or precedence to show to these victims uh, or the survivors that, uh, yes, we can go back, fight back, and it is our basic human rights. Uh, it is very difficult to sustain this. And very often in, in this process, people just cave in and say, forget it. Whatever happened, have happened. Uh, let me get along with life. So mm, litigation for torture is still uh, a big challenge 
that we face as uh, human rights activists in the context that uh, we find ourselves. Thank you, Bablu, for sharing uh, so deeply about uh, you know the intricacies and the frustrations and challenges of working uh, uh, on both documentation and and litigation in the context of Manipur. Henry, if I can ask you to share your thoughts on on the the complement and the challenges uh, implicit in in documenting and intervening in torture cases. Uh, um, I'm really overwhelmed by something which I need to say because uh, uh, towards the run-up of uh, this year's uh, 26th of June happens to be on the 22nd and 23rd, the uh, the day when uh, the father and the son uh, from Satankulam in Tutukoran district of Tamil Nadu were tortured in police custody, were sent for medical examination with blood dripping. Their, 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 their dhotis had to be changed thrice. And in spite of it, the medical examination was fit for remand. Brought before the judicial magistrate who was able to physically see them and still remanded them to judicial custody in offences which were less than seven years punishment contrary to the Arnish Kumar judgment. And when they went into jail, initially the jail officer refused admission because of their health condition. And then on a telephone call from the jail superintendent, admitted them in the sub-jail and they died subsequently two days later on 22nd and 23rd. This is what has happened recently. And it's very important, therefore, for us to see that documentation starts for all of us in fact-finding missions that we have undertaken. And gradually over the years, we have learned, Devika, that we need medical professionals to accompany us and particularly forensic medicine experts to travel with us. And it is without them, the fight against torture becomes incomplete. And the more we, we went into documentation, we realized that if we want the true version, then we needed also psychologists with us who are able to spend time uh, with the survivor in order that the best version, closer version, uh, which will generate more evidence is available with us. Uh, sometimes these look, look very silly to hold the hand of the survivor. And when we hold and the survivor knows that we are holding their hand, they are willing to stand this long turmoil of prosecution trial that they will have to undergo for many years. So that is something that I thought is important for us to know. Another um, strategy that we used were public hearings. And public hearings helped us. I still uh, remember and wish to narrate what happened in, in a village called Sankarlingapuram, where um, uh, after the elections caste uh, enmity um, between two uh, the, the so-called dominant caste and the Dalit village, um, there were protests by the Dalits. A policeman uh, was, was, was died in the, in the process, and therefore the higher police officials wanted to teach a lesson to this village. They came, they attacked the entire village, and the people had to run helter-skelter, and 189 of them were charged with murder, 189. Not a single leader could enter. It was a public hearing that was held there. Where later, we worked with the community for a long time, and thereafter, we were able to ensure that 45 lakh worth property which was damaged was compensated only because of a public hearing report. And in the prosecution, accepting 11 persons, the others were discharged 
and 11 were finally acquitted by the trial court. Now, these are possible through the strategy of public hearings. Not that every public hearing is successful like this. No, don't, I don't want to create that impression. But the fact that public hearings are held uh, is, is giving a visibility on one side to the issue. The state is humbled in, in some occasions because the report goes against them. And judicial commissions, which are doing parallel work, are forced to come closer to truth because they know there is a report which is already out. And we can narrate the Paramakudi killings that took place in Tamil Nadu or the famous Shalam forest killings of 20 Tamils in the year 2015 that took place, which also came out with a lot of documentation. So documentation through fact findings as well as public hearings is important. But the participation of victims is what, or the survivors is what, uh, strengthens us in the process. And these are not magics that we that we had in our hand. We learned this by experience. We learned this by doing mistakes with the lives of several survivors. And therefore, from the beginning, always to ensure that the family of the survivor stands with us, the community of the survivor stands with us, and the more we have their support, capacity of the survivor to withstand whole process of, of access to justice is becoming better. The third strategy that we used was working with children of survivors, because it is these children who, who will need to, 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 to support the parents, because in every such case, we know it is a long, long run. They have to be ready for the marathon. And to prepare them for the marathon, the children were the best. And I can tell you in confidence, our work among these children has led to many of these children of parents who died in custody, who died in police custody, their, their, their son is a lawyer today working among Adivasis because we accompanied the child, we accompanied him as a young man, and today he's an independent person, also committed to the same cause. We have further lawyers, several lawyers who are working with us, teachers who are working in different schools, who are all children of people who died in custody or tortured in custody in the STF violence that I spoke and other forms of violence. The last is our rehabilitation. Uh, my, my lessons in rehabilitation actually come from one of the torture survivors, where her husband was killed in custody. The eldest son is the one who was, who was a lawyer I mentioned. The youngest son is today uh, working as a social worker in our office. But what is most important in the process is that she taught me that all these things that happen in court are not what is important. That I have time to listen to her, to listen to the different pains that 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 this torture will, 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 will cause her, not for one month, not for one year, not for five years, not for 10 years, but for lifetime. And that lesson was difficult for me as a lawyer to understand. And the last strategy we have used, which is of late, is the use of the Right to Information Act. Fighting impunity is not only documentation and proper litigation, but supporting this documentation, litigation, various forms, including the use of the RTA, which should not be, uh, should not be uh, forgotten these days. I think these are important lessons that we have learned over the years, but our teachers have always been the survivors. And they allowed us the luxury of interfering with their very difficult lives to learn these precious lessons. Thank you, Henry. It's really something to take away that all of us who do this work, who are advocating for torture prevention, our teachers are the survivors. 
Bablu, if you can share your experiences and work on rehabilitation and addressing trauma, as Henry reminds us that addressing trauma is just as important as the legal fight and documentation. Absolutely, uh, Devika. Yeah. Um, when Henry was narrating this story, I was uh, also reminded of a one successful case where uh, the military personnel were prosecuted by the army's own court of inquiry. This was an incident of rape of an of a woman. Her name was Ahanjaubi. I mean, she was uh, become a hero after that. So I am taking the liberty of mentioning her name. Where uh, in an army operation, her husband was the uh, chogidar of the blind school, and uh, in an early morning army operation, she was raped in front of her own uh, son, who was a handicapped uh, child. Uh, this has evoked the anger of the people to such an extent, and, and there was such furious um, people's uh, mobilization and protest, the army was forced to uh, constitute a, a court of inquiry. And the level of solidarity that the people showed to this family, uh, there was one particular organization, women's organization called uh, All Manipur Women's Voluntary Organization. They took turns to live with the family uh, and support the family. And uh, in the army uh, summary court of inquiry, um, testimonies were given. People, I mean, really encouraged her and the whole community was mobilized. And so clear evidence was uh, laid out and uh, two of these um, rapists were convicted. So this was one of the rarest of the rare case where there was a conviction. And this was possible because of the people's solidarity, people standing firmly with the uh, victim and therefore they, uh, from from survivors he became basically a, a fighter and and a hero in front of the people uh, so that process also is one where you you rather than shame uh, you you become uh, a harbinger of uh, justice and that transformation is what we all also try to do when we organize the families of the victims of extrajudicial execution with Absfa with this, uh, you know, sanction for killing and the, the level of impunity, it was very difficult to get uh, justice in the normal uh, course of event. Um, what we do in the court is a small part of the whole journey for justice. To rekindle life, I think that is a much more wider community process that has to take place. As Henry was also saying, putting out their trauma in significant way in front of the tribunals that are being constituted, people's tribunals that are being constituted, are also very cathartic for these people. Uh, much more than that, if these victims can come together and find a soldier to cry and vent out their trauma together, as they say, sorrow share is sorrow half, joy share is joy double, uh, it, it has a certain healing power. And, and if there is a direction in which we can all move together in solidarity toward higher goal rather than just killing ourselves in this revenge uh, motive, if we can come up to a larger vision which goes above and beyond uh, the cycle of violence uh, to, to the process of justice, uh, that is what we have been trying to do with the families of extrajudicial execution. And we find that now uh, from isolated, victimized, completely disempowered women, they are now the harbinger of justice. 
because of their intervention, because of their advocacy, because of their litigation in the Supreme Court on this 1,528 cases, they are now uh, seen by the society also as very powerful agency rather than than victims. Rehabilitation is not just clinical thing that happen in a in a in isolated clinic, but it's also a social process by which we have come into terms with reality and try to fight for justice uh, using lawful and legitimate ways. And to that extent, I think the human rights framework becomes a very uh, useful strategy for us to adopt and move forward. And in healing oneself, we are also trying to fight the structural injustices with which uh, they were victimized. It's not just an individual journey, but it's also a process for justice for the larger society. And, and it is an, also an opportunity for the state to correct itself and uh, good judges, I think, plays a very critical role uh, in uh, bringing about this. Thank you, Bablu, uh, especially for, I think, you know, really drawing that connection between the strength and empowerment uh, that comes to uh, victim survivors in this fight. Henry, if you'd like to just share any last thoughts on uh the way forward as you see it, um, and especially, you know, the the importance of ratification of CAT. Uh, how do you see that? How do you think it can happen? Before getting into that uh, very specific question, Devika, I, I also wanted to say that the cost of such documentation is, is difficult. It's very painful. Fact findings in cases of torture are risky. And I want to narrate very briefly a fact that um, in, a, in a training program, five activists were asked to do a two-day fact-finding uh, of, of a case of a Dalit boy who was tortured in police custody. This resulted in a false case registered against them. The five of them being remanded to judicial custody, kept in the women's jail and the male jail for nine days, signing a, a conditioned bail for another 15 days. And then this happened in 2010. 2018, their, their charge sheet was finally quashed, in which happened in the High Court here. The NHRC had a report the same month almost, and still had ensured that the compensation they ordered was only uh, in 2018. So th there is a cost to be paid for even undertaking fact findings. Having said this, I think it is important to understand that in these litigations, though sometimes we don't fully succeed, we, we, we succeed in establishing standards, and it takes time. In my lifetime, I could never imagine that I would never ever have an opportunity of an activist, of a survivor's um, dependent, being able, or, or a person who had died in custody, for the family members to be able to see the body officially on the postmortem table. And this has taken me at least 40 years to see that we get a court order saying the postmortem will not open without the family members having access to the body, taking photographs of the body, turning the body. Then once the postmortem is over, the report of the postmortem together with the videotape of the postmortem should be handed over to the family and the body maintained in the postmortuary, giving them sufficient time to decide whether they need, after studying the postmortem report, a second postmortem or not. Now, this, this takes time. So standards, establishing standards has also become 
a very important process in this in this whole question of litigation it is our collective fight across the country bablu in that part of the country we hear that led to the executive magistrate inquiry earlier uh, of of in custodial debts which have now become a judicial magistrate inquiry and if it was mm. not for a judicial magistrate inquiry in the recent satagunam case we would have never been able to catch hold of the judicial magistrate who has failed the doctor who has failed etc now this whole very difficult question for the country not for us for the country is uh, whether ratification should be done or not and i don't understand what their difficulties are the law is there well settled um, by the various courts of our country and every every 6 months there are new standards in relation to torture that our supreme courts and high courts are coming up with so coming up with a law is in in reality should not be a difficult thing uh, it is only the resistance that uh, this big figure i i mentioned 1.8 million cases a year is 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 what is frightening them that is something which is uh, uh, really frightening them because that culture of violence non accountability of the law enforcement officials uh, that that we have in the country and mechanisms that don't don't lead to such accountability processes in spite of the the demand for a police act to to be amended the demand for a state police state complaints authority at district police complaint authority to be established etc 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 in spite of all that that is what is making it difficult for the for the government to say yes and any government for that matter it is very ironical that some people who serve as law ministers come in the next next uh, tenure of the next government and say cat has to be ratified so we need both the domestic law coming up as well as the 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 declaration uh, the the ratification of a convention signed at the instance of the nhrc in the year 1997 and and, and therefore today is the time for the new chair uh, of the of the nhrc to demand from this government that the ratification should urgently take place and need not wait till the law comes and the law will should follow immediately thereafter and um, the the law will set a number of procedural matters not the law on torture the law on torture in our country is there in in bits and pieces but the procedural aspects as has been detailed done under the scst prevention of atrocities act and rules that is what we require here to ensure victim protection witness protection is also part and parcel of this whole package of a domestic law that we envisage to fight torture and that is the urgent call of the day and i think i'm sure we are speaking on behalf of a number of victims of torture nearly uh, our figures show 71% of people refuse to speak about torture and they are very prudent because they know if they speak about torture the repercussions are, are very very difficult so when there is such a and for the legal services authority in our country which are managed by judges judges of the lower courts judges at the district courts judges at the high courts judges of the supreme court to suo moto come forward and say every case of torture will be taken by the district legal services authority these are things that can be done we are not talking about things that cannot be done and i think that is what we would like to demand on this day of the un day of uh, solidarity with victims of torture not only ratification not only law but also access to justice through the legal services authority at different levels to make sure that that person has somebody who will rush to her or his rescue in the moment he or she 
has suffered torture. Taking from the points that you both have shared, you remind us that torture is routine in India across contexts, that victims face huge blocks in seeking redress through the criminal justice system, and that we need legal reform in tandem with fundamental changes to the justice system to even begin to address these. Thank you both Bablu and Henry for sharing your perspectives with us today. Hearing about your support to victims has been such a fitting way for us to mark this international day. To all of our listeners, thank you for joining us for this episode and we hope you'll keep listening in.